Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. You say, wait a minute. You're supposed to be in Genesis. I know, but we're in Mark today. We're in Mark chapter 10, going back to the text that was read for us earlier. We do well, I believe, to review often the message of the gospel and the call of Jesus on the lives of his people. We do well to review what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. We do well to consider who God is, who we are as sinners in the light of God's glory, and how we can be made right with God. Because if you take that consideration away, nothing else matters. We must regularly ask ourselves the question, where do I stand with God? How do I know I am right with God? What does it mean to follow Christ? And am I following Him? We do well to remind ourselves that Jesus has called us to follow Him. And that involves action. That involves the sacrifice of ourselves. One of the things that I'm increasingly concerned about among Christians today, and something that I find myself having to, to fight all the time in my own life, is the idea or the expectation that following Jesus is easy. Or that it's just a simple mental affirmation of certain facts about Him. And for many, the concept of Christianity and of the church is formed in, in the light of the world's ideas of uh, a consumerist mentality or a corporate mentality. And so we want to market something that is going to make our lives easier, or something that is compelling to the natural inclinations of mankind at large. And we forget that the church is something fundamentally different than anything else in this world. But we often expect that the church and the Christian life are going to be neat and efficient and smooth. And all of our problems are supposed to go away. And we expect to be, as the old children's song says, in right, out right, upright, downright, happy all the time. And anybody who's been saved for any period of time knows that's just not the way it goes all the time, is it? And yet we expect it. And as a result of that expectation, the expectations that many have of what it takes to be a Christian are alarmingly low. All it takes is a simple decision or a simple sinner's prayer. And all that is expected once you make that decision is maybe some sort of conformity to a basic simple set of standards and maybe to show up to church one service a week and then all is well. But what if all is not well with that approach? What if there is more to the Christian life 
than that. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know there has to be more than that. After all, we give more effort to our entertainment than that. And if we're willing to give effort to our entertainment, how much more is the demand of Christ on the lives of his people? And after all, has anyone ever actually seen that certain set of standards that we're supposed to keep? And do all Christians agree on what it is? Can't be that simple, right? And what about the prayer? The sinner's prayer that's supposed to make it all better. How does it go? And have you prayed it hard enough? Is that really all it takes? Do we now live happily ever after? In our passage for today, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, this text begins with an encounter between Jesus and a man who is seeking eternal life. He even came to the right place, but he missed something crucial. In human terms, this is a golden opportunity for evangelism for Jesus. And yet Jesus lets the man walk away unchanged. And the disciples can't believe it. And they're even more astounded when Jesus proceeds to teach them about the difficulty of entering into God's kingdom. To teach them the difficult demand of discipleship. And it does them well, and it does us well, to be reminded of the cost of following Jesus. Given all that these disciples were about to face, the death of Christ, the persecution and eventual martyrdom that would follow, and given the reality of suffering and hardship, even in the Christian life, it would have been a lie for Jesus to tell them that by following him, they would live their best life now. And anybody who says something like that is to be marked and avoided. Jesus calls all who would follow him to count the cost, to take up their cross, to understand that entrance into the kingdom of God is, in one sense, a very difficult thing. In fact, as we'll see, it is impossible. But he also wants all who do follow him to understand that the reward of following him is infinitely greater than the cost. It's not just greater, it is infinitely greater, immeasurably greater. That is the essence of what Jesus teaches in this passage today, and I want us to read it again and follow this conversation and the scene that comes after it. So look with me at Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? It's an odd question for Jesus to ask. 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I want us to consider, first of all, from this text, the conversation that Jesus has with the man in verses 17 to 22. In its biblical context here, this conversation comes directly on the heels of a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples about children and the kingdom of God. He has been correcting their understanding of how to enter the kingdom of God, what it takes to become a child of God or a citizen of his kingdom. It is not the rich or the famous or the influential, but the weak and the helpless and the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. And now this text in verses 17 through 22 uh, vividly illustrate the very thing that Jesus has been teaching them. Verse 17 begins by telling us that Jesus was setting out on his journey. The journey's destination was Jerusalem. And that is significant because Jesus knew that once he gets to Jerusalem, he isn't leaving. He would soon be crucified. He and his disciples have been on the eastern side of the Jordan River. He's been staying out of the Jewish territory because the hostility has been rising and his time had not yet come, but now his time has come. Now his face is set toward Jerusalem, and he is determined to fulfill his mission. And then we see as Jesus was traveling, no doubt coming into the area now, we read a man 
ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Who is this man? We don't know much about him. We don't know his name. don't know where he lived. We don't know much about him, but that's okay because he's really not the point of the story. But here's what we do know. In verse 22, we're told he had many possessions. He was a wealthy man. The parallel accounts of this story in Matthew and Luke tell us that he was young and that he was a ruler of some sort. This passage also reveals that the man knew the Old Testament law and took it seriously, so it's a safe assumption he was a Jew. What kind of ruler was he? Well, it's possible he could have been a scribe or a Pharisee or even potentially a member of the Sanhedrin, though I doubt it because he wasn't probably old enough. But it seems likely, since he was young, that he was probably a ruler of a nearby synagogue at the very least. Whatever it was, it was clear that this man is wealthy, he's young, and he's respected in society as a leader. And there's something else we notice about this man in this scene, and it is that he is respectful and sincere. A man of standing in that society didn't typically run anywhere. That was undignified. And he certainly would not have knelt before many people. But here, he runs up to Jesus. He is willing to be seen publicly running and then kneeling in front of Jesus, which means he has a very high view of him to say the least. And the way he spoke to Jesus as good teacher, and the way Jesus responds to that shows this man was sincere. He wasn't trying to set Jesus up or trap him in his words like the Pharisees often were. He was sincerely asking a question. But the question he asks and the conversation that follows betrays a certain lack of security that this man has. In spite of his social standing, in spite of his influence and his wealth and his apparent morality, he wonders if he has truly gained eternal life. He has that nagging question in the back of his mind, has it been enough? Have you had that nagging question before? Have you felt that? Do you feel it today? I've achieved everything in life, or I'm at least making an honest effort. Or I may not achieve everything in life, but I'm a pretty good guy and I'm content with where I am. But yet there's that nagging question. What if? What if? What if I haven't achieved enough? That's on his mind. This man, in his own mind, is a good man who is now approaching another good man to find out what else he needs to do in order to take possession of eternal life. Now, this would seem like a golden opportunity to score a huge victory for the kingdom of God. Doesn't it seem like that? An influential, young, wealthy ruler runs up and asks how he can possess eternal life. And we think, man, get this guy to pray the prayer. 
and then make a movie about it, right? What would you say to him? What would you say to this man in this case? We would think that Jesus would say to him what he has been saying all along from the very beginning of Mark's gospel, the message of Christ has been repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You would think that's what he says. But Jesus doesn't say that. Because Jesus knows this man's heart. In verse 18, instead, he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. We're thinking, Jesus, quit fighting over words here. Get this guy in the kingdom, and then, no, but what Jesus is doing here with his questions is exposing a fundamental flaw in this man's thinking that is keeping him from understanding the gospel. This man just walked up to another man who, to him, is, from what we can tell, a complete stranger, and the first thing he does is call him good. And Jesus says from the very beginning that he's being a little too loose with that term. You don't know what you're saying. The Greek word used for good here is not the word that would normally be used to describe the appearance of something. It has to do with inward quality or morality. He's making a moral judgment about a man he doesn't know, showing he doesn't understand what he's saying. And the problem here is not that he called Jesus good, because he is. He is good. Jesus says no one is good except God alone. Well, Jesus is God. He is good. But the problem here is that the man didn't understand what he was saying. And the only way for him to accurately call Jesus good is to confess that he is God. And the man was not willing to do that, as we'll see. Instead, the man demonstrates a misunderstanding of the word good, and he ascribes it to someone else on a relative basis, to one who in his own estimation he deems to be upright and moral and influential. And what Jesus says here strikes at the very heart of this man's concept of goodness. and the concept of goodness that our world tends to have. You see, goodness is not relative. Goodness is not a relative term when we're talking about true goodness. Now, badness might be, in the sense that we're not as bad as we could be, or we're not as bad as someone else. People often like to use the word, the name Hitler, right? Well, I'm not Hitler. But the idea of goodness is not measured by looking at the relative goodness of the people around us, but looking at the perfect standard of the holy God. It is not a relative thing. It is objective. This is the foundation of the man's problem. As good as he thinks he is, and as good as he thinks 
others might be, he is using the wrong standard of measurement. He is comparing himself and Jesus with other people around them, and he is doing it on outward legalistic standards. And if Jesus is going to help this man find the eternal life that he seeks, he first needs to turn his focus away from his own performance and to get to the heart of the problem. And so he begins to do that by addressing this concept of goodness, by uprooting it from where it is and planting it in God alone. And that's the same thing for all of us that we need to see. We find out how good or bad we are, not by comparing ourselves among ourselves to those around us, but by looking at the character of God, His absolute holiness, His absolute righteousness and moral perfection. And in that light, is there anyone among us who can say we are good? Is there any among us who can say that we are righteous and deserving of that eternal life? The Apostle Paul puts it that straightforwardly in Romans chapter 3 when he says none is righteous. Get it? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. In case you didn't get it the first time, no one does good. And in case you didn't get it the second or third time, not even one. Not even this rich young ruler. And then Jesus goes on in verse 19 to continue answering the man's question by proving his point and looking to the Mosaic law. And he says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. What's he doing here? He's pointing back to the perfect law that was revealed to the people of Israel, and he's starting with the second table of the law. See, you can take the Ten Commandments and divide them into two parts. The first four address man's relationship with God. The last six describe man's relationship with man as the outpouring of that relationship with God. Jesus is, in a sense, working backwards, taking the part that can be measured in his life and revealing something to him, and then he's going to move from that, hopefully, to the first table. The man won't give him the time to get there, but he's going to move to the first table of the law. But he begins with the second. He's working backwards to expose his view of God. And he starts out by summarizing the, the practical, measurable applications of the law. So in verse 20, the man's response is this. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Anybody willing to say that? I have kept that from my youth? Well, most of us I don't think have murdered. I would hope most of us haven't committed adultery. Stealing? Yeah, we'll skip that one. <laughs> Bear false witness? Okay, we'll skip that one too. Uh, honor your father? Okay, all right, fine. This man says, no, I've kept it. I've done it. He might be overestimating his own goodness, but I do think he makes an honest effort, and I think he's speaking a, a certain level of truth, saying, Jesus, I have 
to the best of my ability, I have kept this. I don't think he's trying to lie. Likely he was a meticulous keeper of the law in its detail. Humanly speaking, he had a good reputation for these things among men. He had lived with integrity and morality, and Jesus doesn't argue with him on that point. Well, have you ever lied? Have you ever, you ever been disrespectful? He doesn't even argue with him about that. Why? Because that's not ultimately the point. He's going somewhere with this. What this man does not understand is the spirit of the law, the heart condition that the law was intended to reveal. Outwardly, this man was blameless by human standards. And because of that, he could not see the depravity of his own heart. Just as Jesus says, okay, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder already. You are a murderer at heart. And that's an aspect this man could not understand. You see, the law was never meant to give us a list of things to do in order to become citizens of the kingdom of God, in order to earn eternal life. That's not what the purpose of the law was. God knew we can't do that. The law was meant to show us our sinfulness and to reveal our need of a Savior who will keep that law in our place. That is what Jesus is getting at here. Paul gets at it in Galatians 3 when he talks about the law being our schoolmaster or our guardian to prepare us or to point us to Christ. So, after this man's confident claim to blamelessness in the law, in verse 21, Jesus goes on. We read, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I love this. This little phrase that is interjected here that shows us the compassionate heart of Jesus. The man is blind, and it grieves him. And he wants to give him the truth even though he knows his heart. This man was being sincere, but sincerity doesn't save anybody. He was sincerely deceived. And it was genuine, compassionate love for this man that drove Jesus to say what he did. So he continues to expose this man's heart problem. He goes on, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Here's the heart of the problem. It's not about his possessions. It's about how tightly he was holding them. Jesus tells him to go and let go of all of his stuff and then follow him alone. I think this would have been a shock to that man and I think it would have been a shock to the disciples who were standing there watching. In that culture, wealth was viewed as a sign of God's blessing. And that is part of the reason this man could be so confident that he was already righteous, at least mostly righteous, before God. Look at my standing. Look at my blessing. But Jesus here runs completely contrary to the belief of society. By telling him that he will have eternal life when he renounces all of that, and in effect becomes poor, leaves everything behind, and then follows Jesus alone. 
Now, it's important to understand here that Jesus is not condemning wealth, nor is he exalting poverty. He is not saying that the rich are bad and the poor are good. There is no way from this text that we can draw a financial line and say that anyone above it is condemned and anyone below it is good and has eternal life. To do that would be to fall into the same legalistic spirit that Jesus has condemned so many times already. But what Jesus is doing with this man is challenging his view of goodness, and especially in regard to himself, he is exposing the man's heart. And outwardly, this man is pretty good. He was a strict law keeper. He was well-respected. He was moral. He was, he was a commendable man by anyone's standards. As a result of that, he believed that attaining eternal life was just another task, something to perform. And Jesus is trying to help this man understand that his whole view of morality is warped. His whole view of eternal life is wrong. And to do that, Jesus moves beyond the man's outward performance, that second table of the law, and then he, he, he transitions with this call to sell all that he has into exposing the heart problem that is really keeping him from eternal life. By telling him to sell his possessions, he turns the man's focus to the first table of the Ten Commandments, which deal with man's relationship to God. And that, the key point in those first commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And the man's problem here is that there was something standing between him and God. Something that he was choosing to hold on to, to love, to devote himself to, to even worship instead of God. And we know that in saying this, Jesus hit the nail on the head with this man. Because in verse 22, we read, Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And one eternal life. Let go of everything but me. And the man's face fell, disheartened. His face became gloomy. It fell. He was stunned. He was disappointed. He was sad. Because Jesus had just asked of him something he could not do or would not do. He had come up to Jesus with such promise. He was respectful. He was excited. He was enthusiastic about possessing eternal life. And Jesus basically told him, if you're going to have eternal life, you must find your identity only in following me. In order to find his identity in Jesus, he must renounce his identity in anything else. And for this man, that meant letting go of his wealth and the status that he valued so highly and the respect and the power that came with it. That's what it was for this man. What is it for you? What is your identity wrapped up in today? What are you holding on to that keeps you from following Christ with a whole heart? The man revealed his true heart and motive 
when he decided to walk away, still holding on to his wealth instead of following Jesus. Friends, this man walked away from eternal life to hold on to his earthly treasures. Yeah, he was sorrowful, as so many who are perishing today are sorrowful over their sin. And yet he was not sorrowful to the point of being poor in spirit and ready to abandon all things and take hold of eternal life in Christ alone. And again, the main issue here is not that this man was wealthy, but the problem is that wealth, as is so often the case, just like many other things, was dividing his heart and it was standing in the way of following Jesus fully and exclusively. This man started off well. He had come to Jesus, but he had not come all the way to Jesus. Just like many today. And I wonder if there are some among us in this room who appreciate Jesus, who respect Jesus, and who have come to some degree to Jesus, but have not come all the way. My plea is for you, come all the way to Christ today. This man was so devoted to his wealth that the idea of giving it up for any reason was unthinkable. This was his identity. It is who he was. He had not yet come to the end of himself. He was not yet looking to Jesus in utter desperation, and he certainly wasn't submitting to him as Lord of all. He was looking for one more thing he could do, one more place he could, place, he could give his money, one more place he could exercise his influence, one more task he could accomplish in order to gain eternal life. And he just needed Jesus to give him that last piece of the puzzle. And Jesus tells him, you've got it all wrong. You've missed the whole picture. You've missed the whole point. You need to abandon yourself. You need to abandon your efforts and your self-sufficiency and follow Christ alone. Now, what do we make of this passage so far? That's the conversation that Jesus has. And then the man walks away. What does this have to say to us? What does this have to do with us? Well, let me start by speaking to those here who may not yet be Christians. Or maybe those who think they are and yet are deceived. Do you view yourself as generally a good person? Do you have confidence that the life that you live right now is enough to earn you eternal life. What do you think? And if you think it's enough, are you sure? And how do you know? Are you settled on that question? And are you content with where you stand with God? If not, this passage is for you. Jesus is calling you to abandon your pursuit of self-worth. He is calling you to abandon your self-importance, your status, your comfort, your security in the things of this world and the things that you can do. Not that, it's, not that we have to be uncomfortable in this world. That's not the point. It's not a matter of who has what. 
but have you let everything go to pursue Christ? That is what he is calling you to do. He is calling you to recognize your own poverty of spirit and to see that if you are going to have eternal life, you have nothing to contribute. Jonathan Edwards said, we have have nothing to contribute to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's who we are. And when we recognize that, then we are ready to fall with no other plea, to fall into the merciful hands of Christ the Savior, to repent of our sin and follow Him. And there we will find eternal salvation. Christians, what characterizes your life? Is following Jesus just a number, just one of a number of things that you claim? Sports fan, artist, free thinker, writer, poet, Jesus follower. Is that how you're Christianity is defined? Or is following Jesus the characteristic of your life? Having stuff and enjoying what this world has to offer, that's not bad. Jesus doesn't say that it is. But this passage is calling you to evaluate your own life in the light of this rich young ruler. What is it that is standing in the way of your wholehearted, unreserved, fully dedicated devotion and service to Christ? Where are you seeking your security and the assurance of your salvation today? Now that conversation that Jesus has leads us to two natural questions based on what we've just witnessed with this rich young ruler. Number one, If Jesus is going to turn away this promising young man, then who will he accept? And two, is there any promise or assurance given to the one who has left everything to follow Christ? Jesus deals with both of these questions in the rest of the passage. And so in verses 23 through 27, we move on from the conversation to see the instruction that Jesus gives. In verse 23, he turns his attention to the disciples. The rich young ruler's gone. He looks at his disciples and tries to help them understand what they just saw. And he makes a general statement about wealth in the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And again, the idea is not that being rich is the one main sin. No, it's a perfect illustration of those things that stand in the way of coming all the way to Christ. Wealth. However we define that, whatever that looks like, is often one of those key tripping points. This rich young ruler was a vivid illustration of that. He simply had too much to lose to follow Christ. And then verse 24 gives us an idea of what the disciples thought. They were amazed at his words. They were amazed because what Jesus said was so contrary to everything that they had known. Remember, wealth was viewed as a sign of God's blessing. They likely had had not considered that it could be something that stands between them and the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are amazed that Jesus would say something like this. 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doubles down. He reasserts the point, even in more universal terms. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. A much-needed reminder in our Bible Belt, easy believism society, right? You don't just walk the aisle. You don't just say a couple nice things. You don't just put a fish on your license plate. It is difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It has serious implications. How difficult is it? He says in verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? You would think the commentators do all sorts of linguistic gymnastics to try to downplay what he is saying here. Well, there was the needle gate. In order to go through the needle gate, the camel had to get down on its knees and, and go through because it was a short gate and, and all of this. Listen, there wasn't a needle gate. A camel was a very large animal. I think the largest in that part of the world. And the eye of a needle is about the smallest opening you can get through. What's the point? What's Jesus saying? It's not really, it, it's just really hard, but you have to get down on your knees and go, no, it is impossible. That's it. It is impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven. There are no works that we can do. There are no achievements we can accomplish. There is no status we can hold. There are no measures of sincerity or goodness that are high enough to make salvation possible on our own. It cannot be done. It is impossible. And the response of the disciples in verse 26 shows that they fully understand what Jesus was saying. They were exceedingly astonished. These guys are dumbfounded. And they cry out, then who can be saved? It's an excellent question, isn't it? If this rich young man does not qualify with all of his wealth and influence and morality and reputation, then who does? And Jesus, we're trying to follow you. What kind of hope is there for us? Who can be saved? Do any of us have hope? And Jesus answers that question in verse 27. With man, it is impossible. He confirms their suspicions. On your own, you don't have any hope. If this man does not qualify for salvation, then no one does. And that's the truth. In order for any of us to find the eternal life that we need and that this man was seeking, we have to begin by recognizing that we do not qualify for it. We cannot earn it. We are dead in our sin. There is no spiritual life. There is no righteousness in us. That is what the Apostle Paul explains in Ephesians 2 when he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not you were sick. You were injured. You were limping along and I helped you out. No. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course. You were not only spiritually dead, but you were actively following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3 goes on to explain that we were we are children of wrath. That is the natural state of all mankind. That is what Jesus is reinforcing with his disciples here. It is impossible to enter the kingdom of God on our own merit because we are all natural-born sinners. And none of us can live up to the perfect standard that God has set. We don't qualify. Have we come to a sufficient point of poverty of spirit yet? Has it resonated in our minds that we have nothing to offer to God? That's the bad news. But there's good news too. Let's look at the rest of Jesus' answer. This is the good news. Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And with this, Jesus highlights not just the impossibility of salvation, but the miracle of salvation. He isn't saying that no one can be saved. He's saying to the disciples what he would have said to the young man had he stuck around to hear it. The first step to finding eternal life is realizing our own hopelessness before God without Christ. And then by breaking this man of his dependence on wealth for security, Jesus was preparing him to embrace the mercy that can't be earned. Jesus is telling us that salvation has never been about performance. It has never been about possessions or status. There is no way we can be good enough. But where man sees impossibility, God creates possibility. This is where the gospel comes into clear focus. Again, the Apostle Paul deals with it in Titus chapter 3 when he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. The very thing that we just concluded was impossible. He accomplished. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How did He make the impossible possible? God has given the opportunity for us to stand completely righteous, completely justified, not by being good, but by claiming the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ for ourselves. You see, God put Jesus on the cross. You heard me right. The Romans didn't do it. God did it. God put Jesus on the cross. And he did it so that he could pour out his wrath for sin on him instead of us. And in doing that, and what Christ accomplished by, his, by the cross and by his resurrection, God is now able to take Jesus' sinless perfection and apply it to you just as he took your sin and applied it to him. And in his righteousness, we can stand justified, at peace with God. This is the part that Jesus couldn't get to with the young man. Salvation in our own strength is impossible. 
But when we come to him in utter poverty of spirit, looking for his mercy and grace, looking for his forgiveness alone, we find salvation and eternal life. It has been accomplished. God makes it possible through Christ. Now you might think that is a great place to stop. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. And in verses 28 through 31, he gives a word of encouragement, a word of assurance to these disciples whose faith has been challenged right here, who are a little shaky now. And he assures them this is how their salvation has worked too, just as it is for everyone else. So in verse 28, Peter says to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And the implication is, but Jesus, we've done this. Have we missed something? Is that good enough? What about those who have left everything to follow Christ? That was our second question. And I suppose Peter could sound a little arrogant here, but that's not what is going on at this point. It really is true that these men had left everything to follow him. Yeah, they didn't sell all their possessions, but they left most of them behind. They had severed relationships. They had left their comforts. They had embraced the reproach of following after Jesus. And after what Jesus has just taught them about the impossibility of salvation, they may be wondering, is it really enough? Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Are we any better off than this man? In verses 29 and 30, Jesus answers him with a powerful word of encouragement. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. He gives a powerful word of assurance in two spheres of life, this time and in the time to come. And he refers to the present time and he lists those things that they may, that several of them had to leave in order to follow Christ. Houses, family members, lands, kind of like Abram in Genesis 12 that we've learned about. And he mentions leaving all those things for the sake of the gospel and for following him. But then he promises a hundredfold return. What is he talking about there? See, I left my house in order to follow Christ. And now look, I got a ten times bigger house. That's not what he's getting at. It doesn't mean that following Christ will make us rich or even prosperous in this world. But it does mean that the reward for following Christ the spiritual and eternal reward is so far greater than whatever we sacrifice in this world that our earthly losses are as gain. I gladly renounce them. And some of you, when you came to Christ, when you began following Him, you had to forsake some things that were near and dear to you. Perhaps... It was physical property of some sort. Perhaps it was alienation or strife with some family members. Jesus never said that wouldn't happen. What he promised was 
the sacrifice is going to be more than worth it. Trust me, he says. Where do you find those relationships? Where do you find that physical care? Where do you find that return even now? You find it among God's people. You find it in the church. Where are our spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers? He doesn't say fathers because that's God the Father. Where is it that we find the support and care and provision and help and discipleship that leads us on in eternal life? It is here. Have you ever noticed that in the community of believers, the church, you often find your closest relationships? If not, you should. It's why we're often referred to as a family. The church is the family of brothers and sisters in Christ. God is the Father. And in this family, we find the care and concern and encouragement, the teaching, the love, the fellowship of believers who bear our burdens with us. In other words, God cares for those who follow Him. And He will fulfill His promises. And that's necessary because Jesus also mentions that in this time there will also be persecutions. Life won't be easy. There will be persecutions. Following Jesus is not easy in this world. Jesus never said it would be. But even in the face of persecution, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of temptations, we find the encouragement and joy and strength that we so desperately need in the lordship and the promises of Jesus Christ and in the community and the support of his people, the church. And that helps us to keep our eyes on the ultimate reward for following Jesus, and that is eternal life. That is the reward that he describes in the age to come. And the answer to the man's original question is here. You want eternal life? Give up your attachment to the things of this earth and follow Jesus. Now, this story ends with a very common saying of Jesus in verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. What does that verse have to do with verses 17 through 30? There are many who've said Jesus didn't actually say that here, but Mark puts it here as a common saying of Jesus because it fits. Jesus does not say here that in eternity the tables will be turned and those who are rich will be poor and those who are poor will be rich. Again, that's to think like the rich young ruler. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is that there is in the kingdom of God a level playing field whether you are first or last makes no difference. Rich or poor does not matter. We all enter as children. And the question is whether or not you are willing to empty yourself of all confidence in your own works, in your own status, in your own comfort, whether you are willing to even renounce your earthly security and your attachment to the things of this world in order to follow Jesus. And I'm convinced that in our church, just like in every other church, there are some among us who have given mental assent to Jesus. 
and yet have not renounced the things of this world to follow. I don't know who that is because I can't see your heart, and this is a heart battle. This is not about doing good things or being a good person. This is not about even being better than the other people around us. This is about recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ has made eternal life available to those who by faith cry out for mercy. Sometimes we haven't come all the way to Christ because we haven't seen our need for mercy. This is about submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord, following Him, believing Him, embracing the difficulty of the Christian life, enduring the struggle with an eye on the joy that is set before us, and letting everything go for the sake of Christ and His mission in this world. This is what it looks like to live by faith, to walk by faith. Friends, are you devoted to the temporary enjoyments of this world? Answer that question honestly before God. Or are you living by faith with eternity on your mind and Christ in your view? Let's pray.